Welcome to Brave. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Ao, a VC founder and father. Join us for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.jeremyao.com. Hi, Ani. I'm really excited to have you on the show to discuss, obviously, your own founder journey as well as what you see of Southeast Asia. I'd love for you to briefly introduce yourself. Hi, Jeremy. Uh, it's fantastic to be here. And uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to the chat. About myself, I'm Arnie. I'm the CEO and founder of Parcel Perform. Parcel Perform is a delivery experience platform for e-commerce merchants. We help merchants and marketplaces worldwide to manage the customer experience uh, post-checkout. We do this by integrating with a lot of different carriers and integration partners and ensure that we can deliver the best experience for end customers for our partners uh, so th this is one of our kind of mottos and mantras that we feel that everyone deserves a great e-commerce experience. And I think that's what we want to do as possible form to deliver it uh, kind of uh, across the globe. How did you get started as an entrepreneur? You were a consultant, you were the CEO of Zalora, you were a GM at Singapore. So can I share us a little bit how that journey worked out? Okay, no problem. I started my professional journey with McKinsey as a consultant back in Europe. I was based uh, out of Germany. Uh, and uh, at that time, uh, I think uh, my work focused around the mobile telecom sector. There was a time when 3G and uh, LTE networks were rolled out. And I think it was a very exciting space. There was a lot of growth, a lot of like ideas around uh, new services that come out. So this is how I spent the first uh, kind of five years of my, my professional life, kind of working in, uh, in Europe and Middle East. Africa around this topic. Nevertheless, I think this sector in, in Europe got, got a lot more established. So I, I really looked for new challenges. And uh, that's, that's when I kind of relocated to Singapore to work with customers here in this part of the world. So I, I spent time working in the Philippines and in Indonesia, Thailand, also working on the mobile telecom sector. And I, I think that was a great experience. But I think by that time, uh, we were already realized uh, okay, uh, telecoms, everything was moving into a flat rate kind of economy, it became a lot less interesting. So that's why I was looking for new challenges. And that's when the opportunity with Zalora came around. I love the idea of exploring e-commerce, which at that time was still a very, very early stage. And so I, I, I loved the opportunity to jump into this and being a part of the first kind of players in Southeast Asia to establish an e-commerce business. So we did that with Zalora and I was with Zalora kind of setting up the, the first, I think, eight markets at that time, literally getting exposure to seeing uh, kind of how e-commerce works in markets like Singapore, but on the other hand, like Indonesia, up to Taiwan. Uh, so, so there was a great experience to see the e-commerce system evolving and also see how each of these markets were different. One of the things that is, uh, kind of came came true for me is uh, kind of my interest in the area around e-commerce logistics because that was one of the key drivers for success uh, in e-commerce that we uh, very early on realized. So with that, uh, I, I uh, wanted to stay in the space and uh, then joined the SingPost uh, and then a little later DHL e-commerce to really focus on uh, e-commerce logistics and how it can help e-commerce merchants to deliver better service. So I spent quite 
quite a bit of time with uh, DHL e-commerce. It was a great opportunity to, to learn the logistics side from the perspective of a logistics player and how to kind of build services for e-commerce from delivery, additional services on top. But I think one of the key lessons that we learned speaking to, to many uh, e-commerce merchants was, hey, uh, we don't just want to work with one carrier because we have so many different markets, service levels, small products, big products. Some people want it fast, some want it slow. So you end up working with so many different logistics players so that even if you, as DHL at that time, deliver the most amazing service, they will still go and work with multiple players. And uh, one of the things that always was a big complexity driver and a kind of a little bit of a problem for their customer experience is that they have to work with that many players and need to create a great experience across all those different players they work with. And there was no platform in the market that makes this any easier. So that's when we said, hey, this is not a problem we can solve within DHL. This is something we have to solve outside DHL because you need to be carrier agnostic, carrier independent. That's when the idea of Parcel Perform was born. And uh, Dana, my co-founder, and I said, hey, let's do it. Let's try it out. Uh, this is the right time to get started on this. And I think everything points into the direction that uh, our timing was, was about right. Amazing. I think a lot of interesting dynamics here. You know, when we zoom in, you know, you were a management consultant for such a long time. Why did you decide to leave management consulting to take on this entrepreneurial founding role as the founding CEO of Zolora? What was that decision like? If you go into a management consulting, for the early years, your work is all about finding solutions for customers and uh, their particular business problems. So you learn a lot being, being exposed to different functional domains. So you work on, on product topics, you work on technologies, you work on marketing topics, uh, procurement in different parts of the world and different businesses. Uh, so it's super exciting because it gives you like a unique perspective on the business world with exposure into so many different areas. So, so uh, I think that's a great learning journey for anyone uh, com coming out of, our, out of school wanting to explore what business life is like. So the more senior you get in consulting, then you, you start managing your own projects. You get uh, kind of uh, have teams. Uh, you work uh, in more complex settings. You have a broader kind of settings with multiple teams. So, uh, so that's when uh, you build up a skill set. But at, at certain uh, level, uh, kind of the consulting job uh, moves away from solving problems into kind of exploring kind of opportunities, kind of to sell more projects to the customer. So when it turns from solving is a problem into like selling kind of the problem solving. That's when I think, hey, this is this is not what, what excites me uh, as much. So that's when I said, hey, uh, I learned what I needed to learn to understand the business world, uh, how to run uh, kind of uh, solve problems and run teams that solve problems. That's when I wanted to go, hey, uh, uh, let uh, let me go into the industry uh, to to build something myself and solve problems myself rather than just being the hired gun to do it for others. Amazing. What's interesting is that you're kind of like shuttle back. You go back to being an operator in a larger organization. So what was that experience like? Because I think people normally, you know, kind of make that shift and they stay there. So what was driving that decision to say, like, hey, I want to double down in this vertical called logistics and e-commerce. I would like to do this in a larger player. 
the, the honest answer is kind of at that time in, um, in my professional career, I think consulting was the only thing I have seen and experienced. You always want to go to the other side uh, because uh, you want to uh, add that experience to your portfolio or to your CV. One of the things when we set up Zalora, as much as it was an exciting journey, I would say uh, with any particular fast scaling and I think at that time Rocket Internet uh, was was a very unique place uh, to be working. There's a lot of like unique experiences you can you gather where you also sometimes feel hey uh, a little bit more of a structured environment might be useful at times. And I think that's when I uh, also said I really like the e-commerce logistics vertical. I like to have a little bit of more uh, less chaotic environment where we build substance kind of uh, from scratch. That's why I said this is now the right time for me to move on and to, first of all, in the e-commerce logistics space and in a, in a more kind of a, in a bigger organization where uh, you, you build uh, services kind of uh, more, more methodically. So obviously then after doing that for a while, I think it's, uh, it's of course, you miss the entrepreneurial kind of side of things, the fast decision making, the kind of flexibility you have. Because if you're in a bigger organization, they're like a, a very different decision making kind of logics. We weren't part of the headquarter. We were like kind of uh, sitting in Asia where the headquarters in Europe. Uh, so there were, there's a lot of complexities or red tape that you have to deal with. So I was missing the uh, entrepreneurial vibe uh, that I had. So, and that's where I think when, when the time came and uh, I said, hey, I really have this uh, idea and opportunity that we could be pursuing with Parcel Perform that uh, I also uh, had the confidence where I said, hey, uh, let's, let's do it for me to also get back to this entrepreneurial work environment. And uh, it's also a kind of a different experience if you start a company from scratch uh, where you have to basically rebuild the initial product, uh, kind of find supporters. I think whereas starting a, a kind of a business uh, with obviously in the setting of uh, rocket internet with all the capital and uh, the ambition and the, the pressure it's a very different experience and uh, yeah I, I appreciate it uh, kind of starting it the normal way uh, kind of uh, as a founder where you just uh, build the business uh, find supporters and then uh, bit by bit, you enhance everything, you validate product market fit, uh, you find your first customers. I think that was, was a very, very valuable journey uh, that we went through. It wasn't easy all the time, but I think it's an experience I don't want to miss. And you shared that you know you decided to specialize and because you liked and loved e-commerce logistics. And that's an interesting vertical to be interested in because when I was a consultant, I got to see you know consumer, B2B, telecoms as well, hardware as well. And it's interesting to see you specialize that across not only multiple roles, but also multiple domains. So lots of folks are passionate about, I don't know, creative economy, right? Or VR or gaming. I think that's easy. But what was it about e-commerce logistics that made it compelling for you? No, I think one of the things that we realized when setting up uh, um, Zalora here in Southeast Asia, one of the key metrics for success, I very much believe so uh, still, is that you manage uh, the logistics process uh, well and everything around it. So, so logistics is not just kind of uh, the shipping from A to B. It's the whole experience after checkout. Because I think for, for us at that time, I think we realized, okay, we just wanted to get the revenue in. E-commerce logistics was just there to just make it happen so the customer gets their product. Uh, but we were more, more focused on bringing a new customer, new business. So we needed uh, to excite people with the right products uh, and have the marketing uh, sorted out. 
But I think what was very apparent already at that time is for you to be successful in the long run, I think the customer need to trust the product. It's about retention, about customers coming back, kind of making it part of their routine to buy from you as a store. And I think that's where logistics plays an important role because the customer doesn't uh, appreciate or doesn't kind of uh, is not uh, even aware of the, uh, the marketing channel they can, came to, to know about the shop. What they essentially will remember is the experience they had and uh, that's very much linked to the post-purchase process as well as the logistics process that they experienced. So I think that's, that's where I believe, uh, hey, uh, for the long-term success of e-commerce, I think this is one of the most important uh, domains. Obviously, you still need to do your marketing right and you need to have the right products, uh, fair enough. But I think for, for what I feel, this is the area also where not very many people spend kind of the time to think through how can we excel in logistics, how we can excel in the e-commerce experience. That's where I felt, hey, this is a domain where I, I can make a difference. That's why we basically said, hey, the parcel perform is for, for me the company, the business this, that tries to kind of make life better for consumers worldwide and obviously in the process build, build a sizable business that we can be proud of. As a founder, did you find, you know, you had all this domain expertise that was relevant for the company you're building. Did you find anything relevant or transferable for your time as a McKinsey consultant that made it easier to operate either as a founder or CEO in time to come? The learnings you have from being a consultant is, is less uh, tangible that, oh, I learned marketing or I learned this or that. Uh, I think it's mostly about how you tackle problems. To be effective as a consultant is uh, to basically uh, be able, faced with any kind of problems, uh, to have a very methodical, uh, structured way of solving it, bring uh, the organization or the team that you're working with along, make sure that you build report behind the solution. These are all skills that are not specific kind of to any particular functional domain or any particular problem, but it's a methodic uh, method methodology on how you operate. And I think that that has been kind of useful uh, for throughout my career, whether you're solving problems uh, in your customer companies as a consultant or whether you start your own business, kind of whether you work for a big corporate, the kind of uh, the process or the tool set that you kind of learn in consulting is, is something that's very useful. I think that's where I, I'm also incredibly grateful for that experience to be able to learn this in the context of so many organizations. And I think that contributed to me being successful in many of the kind of opportunities afterwards. And what would you say are the things that did not transfer well to being a founder CEO? You know, because I went through that same experience, right? I was a consultant at Bain and I became a founder and I realized I had to unlearn some stuff. It doesn't work, right? It doesn't fly. So what would you say are some of the things that stopped working for you or that you had to consciously choose to change? No, I, I think one, one of the things that you need to get used to is you need to be super, super granular. As a consultant, uh, you're also kind of, you're paid to be high level, to be abstract, uh, to inspire people strategically. So, so it's okay for other people to sort out the details. That's obviously not an approach that works well as a startup founder. Uh, so, so when you start a business, literally, you're not just there to for the thought process and the great ideas, you actually need to get stuff done. And I think uh, that's, that's part of the journey uh, you have to go through. And uh, it's uh, literally every job that there is in the company. Uh, there was a time in, in the past that I had to do it. We just uh, hired a CFO for Parcel Perform. But uh, literally, I can recall where I, I did every part of the job 
myself from building the model, uh, kind of paying people at the end of the month, kind of uh, setting up the accounting software in the first place. And, and I think that's a very rewarding experience. And this is the st stuff you need to unlearn uh, being a consultant. It's like, okay, it's great uh, kind of uh, to have the strategy and the ideas, but I think uh, it's it's all about being granular, being able to 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 challenge everyone on the uh, fu functional domain uh, in detail i think that's that's one thing you need to do differently than uh, you probably used to and uh I think uh, one of the kind of the, the war stories kind of uh, that uh, were sailed in the rocket internet days is like, okay, strategy is uh, the thing that you do for five minutes under the shower in the morning and the rest of the day you execute. Although obviously that's an exaggeration. Uh, I, I think that's kind of emblematic of the unlearning process that some people have to go through coming from consulting. Yeah? I think that's a really good transition that I really empathize with myself. You can make the nicest whiteboard and the deck and the source plan, but the honest reality is what actually gets done. And what actually gets done is often you have to do it yourself with your co-founder at best, and you have to divide and conquer. Anything else that you think was part of the untraining process? I guess one thing that I do think of that I had to get untrained off is like, I think data, maybe collection. So in McKinsey and Bain is very much like these large reports, macros, and I think as a founder, very much talking to the customer, right, and getting the feedback from them directly, which is a very different level altogether. Anything else that comes up to mind about stuff that you have to untrain or you notice that management consultants struggle when they transition to becoming a founder? Now, I, I think one thing that was a great learning process for me is essentially tech. So as a management consulting company, they're the most, I think obviously that has changed in the last 10 years, but nevertheless, it, it wasn't the most tech-savvy space. And you, you didn't have to. It was all about big ideas. Kind of, you get incredibly savvy in building PowerPoint presentations and Excel models, but I think really understanding technology, uh, kind of software, software development, software development processes, that wasn't something that uh, you can pick up or easily kind of learn in that kind of environment. Uh, so I, I worked with mobile telecom companies so, so I was kind of familiar on how the networks work and how do we roll them out and what the technology is behind it. But the notion of technology uh, and software development, and uh, that was entirely new for me. So this was this kind of a learning that uh, I think through Zalora and then a kind of more work around uh, the logistics industry, that's the that's kind of a knowledge I acquired then. And even starting Parcel Perform, I think that the first uh, few years was, was uh, very much a tech learning journey for me. I think from business background, I did a PhD in economics. So, so this is also not the domain that's most tech savvy. I think that's one thing. So tech is one. The, the other area is, uh, is uh, kind of data and the capabilities of data. Because uh, obviously at the time, uh, kind of when I kind of started as a consultant in 2005, what is now called data science and machine learning AI was called statistics. So very much similar things, but uh, a lot less exciting and sexy. Uh, so, but I think that they're kind of really understanding, embracing the notions on what data can do, what how you set up a business, an opportunity in order to leverage uh, as much data as possible. I think this is something you also have to learn uh, by doing. I think there's there's now a lot of courses in university, etc., that kind of already ingest you with the right mindset for it. Uh, but that wasn't the case at the time, and uh, frankly, not even in consulting in the kind of late 2000s. So data was just something you'd collect in order to get stuff done. It was hardly a purpose by itself. And I think that's where I think for me personally, that was one of the great learning journeys to somebody, okay, who 
was quite proficient in statistics to now embrace and understand kind of what machine learning AI can do, that it's no longer like working with models. It's like a, literally a coding discipline right now. I think that's that's the great learning journey. Although I'm not able to do it myself, I believe it was great to get, a, get an exposure, enough exposure to be able to understand how this can be leveraged for the business to be successful. There's a lot of stuff to learn and McKinsey, but also stuff to unlearn, right, as being a founder. And I think what, you know, you've done and built over time is this large, you know, logistics business in terms of being thoughtful about the category and space. Do you feel like Southeast Asia, what else is there to build in terms of e-commerce logistics from your perspective using these skills? We are a technology platform, so we're not building the logistics businesses. That's also incredibly hard. Uh, so I'm happy I don't have to do that. Uh, no, but I think if I look at it from the perspective of a consumer, there's still a lot to be desired when it comes uh, to e-commerce. So when we think about e-commerce, it's not just, oh, you order something and you get it. That obviously works by now. It wasn't the case in 2012 when we started, but I think by now, uh, I think everyone can order kind of literally anything uh, and eventually get there. So, but I think what we have seen also over the last uh, two years with the pandemic is now the next step for e-commerce is to be seamlessly integrating in everyone's daily life. So basically replacing patterns kind of of going shopping. I think groceries is an important one uh, where you're like, okay, uh, how do you organize your life? How do you get stuff? Uh, how do you kind of uh, um, make this as seamless as possible for yourself. And I think that's where there's a lot of kind of uh, opportunities uh, to make e-commerce more accessible uh, for, for consumers and easier to use. And I think uh, we're seeing uh, and we're getting inspiration from, from different geographies. One important element is uh, delivery times. So if you order something, it's I think on average still takes like a week because stuff gets shipped from overseas. Delivery times are still very unpredictable. If you do the same, let's say, in uh, Korea or Japan, which is always a great example, uh, you order something and four hours later it shows up. And it's not because you ordered like a super expensive same-day service. It's because that's the norm. And I think then uh, if you know that whatever you order comes four hours later, you, you think about e-commerce and uh, shopping uh, through this channel uh, very, very differently. And I think that that transition, I think a lot of kind of uh, markets and consumers still have to make. I think right now we are also trained to know, okay, if I want something faster, I need to pay more. In those markets, they turned around that logic. It's like delivering faster means kind of uh, using the same infrastructure and asset more efficiently. Uh, so it actually becomes cheaper because you can use the same truck 24 hours or the same sorting center for 24 hours instead of just once a day. And I think that's that's where the whole industry and that's uh, kind of uh, needs uh, needs to also rethink the way they think about e-commerce logistics and saying, hey, for this to really very change in the way uh, kind of consumers uh, interact with the service, I think the logistics industry needs to make that kind of transition. Another big topic is collection points because one example I always say, hey, uh, 50 years ago, if you got a letter, the postman came to you and gave you the letter. That was okay because they only had like, God knows, you get a letter every week or something. Then they realized, okay, now that the customer is getting so many letters, it's kind of inefficient. Uh, so they started building post boxes because that wasn't the case like uh, in the very early days. Uh, we're now getting to the same stage for parcels. Uh, instead of giving it every parcel by itself, I think some households get like 
two, three passes a day, uh, kind of on average. Uh, that's kind of not a smart way of doing it. So I think uh, that's where locker boxes, collection points, or like uh, even in bigger kind of condominiums, apartment buildings, to have like uh, parcel lockers in every house entrance. I think this is the future to really make it part of, uh, of your, your normal life. And so you collect your mail in the post box and you collect your parcels in the parcel box that are next to it. And I think that's, that's I think, uh, countries like Singapore making important steps where they have like, okay, roll out a, a big parcel locker infrastructure. But even that, uh, you can get a lot more granular. And uh, that's, that's how we really start changing patterns for consumers to really be ex uh, excited for e-commerce and adopt it in a very, very different way. And uh, that's where we believe a lot of the growth will come from over the next few years. You're sharing some really important truths about the e-commerce logistics system. Are there any myths or misconceptions about e-commerce logistics that you'd like to debunk or shed some light on? One of the, the interesting things is, first of all, e-commerce logistics technically grows faster than e-commerce itself. Uh, I think that's what a, a lot of our people don't even realize because the average order sizes goes down. Uh, we have a shift towards marketplaces. Marketplaces uh, basically pull things from different sellers so that they're technically more and more parcels being sent. Uh, if you order more things, you don't necessarily pull orders anymore that you order like 15 things at one time. You just order one if you like it, then you order the next and and the next. So e-commerce uh, and the number of shipments grows much, much faster than e-commerce. That's one of the key things. Also, that's, that's quite an eye-opening realization for also for investors in this space. A few years back, everyone thought, okay, uh, e-commerce logistics is dominated by three, four big players per market, uh, kind of the incumbent players like always kind of win in the space. What we're seeing in the industry is the whole industry is kind of now fragmented. Like I think we, we counted in Singapore there, I think almost 15 companies that can deliver parcels to your doorstep. This number is growing over time. What we are seeing that there is a lot more competition, a lot more innovative services coming up. And it's not an industry that is like dominated by one or two big players, which is fantastic news for consumers. Not so great news if you're the, the incumbent that was dominating the market previously. But I think that's, that's what we're seeing. Uh, and this is getting really exciting for consumers. So, and I think there are a lot of uh, new trends coming out of it. And uh, the, the myth that everyone said, oh, yeah, this is a market, we have players, and nothing's going to come about in terms of change and innovation. I think we're seeing a lot of innovation there, and I think there's still a lot more to come. The other area is like uh, about consumer kind of expectations. So I think one uh, that we said is about delivery time. If you look at parcel delivery time, some carriers are faster than others. That doesn't necessarily mean that their trucks drive faster. Yeah, they, they, uh, I think it's a lot about them organizing themselves so the parcel doesn't sit in a particular hub waiting for too long. So, and uh, I think the, this is, uh, I think I mentioned earlier, this is the myth that uh, something that's delivered faster needs to be more expensive. It's actually, it can be more efficient. You don't need that much space to store the parcels while they wait around. Uh, so it's actually cheaper to get it done fast. I think that's, that's an important thing also for everyone to realize and for the carriers to realize being fast is not just a kind of a premium service, but uh, that's essentially what they need to do in order to be successful in the long run. The last element is from the consumer experience point of view. Delivery time is not the only thing that matters. A lot of consumers, they don't want to organize their life around e-commerce. They want e-commerce to 
organize around their life. So there's a lot of ser services coming up, particularly in, uh, in Europe and the US, about redirecting deliveries, rescheduling deliveries, kind of easy kind of acceptance, returns. So there, there's, a, I think, uh, this paradigm shift that you have to organize yourself to get your parcels. I think it's already happening at very fast pace. And I think that's that will be a big change for the industry that they say, hey, we need to work around what the consumer wants to have rather than dictating, oh, this is our service, uh, take it or leave it. That's a big learning, sometimes painful learning for the industry. But uh, I think something we are very excited about because we as a business thrive for many players coming up from consumers being demanding about the experience. That's kind of the lifeblood for us as possible perform. And that's why we're exciting to be in this space. Amazing. I think it was interesting is that you mentioned how the market doesn't trend towards a single player, but to more fragmentation. That's confusing because uh, one of the advantages, of course, is economies of scale, right? And so you would think that with logistics, the more packages there are, the more volume there is, economies of scale will become more and more important, right? And therefore, it should trend towards the largest players who have the most economies of scale. I mean, that's at least one way to think about it. So what's wrong with this mental model or what's wrong? Is it because they're not able to compete on innovation? Is it because e-commerce is a whole new category? Could you share a little bit more about why economies of scale is insufficient for the incumbents to hold on to their market share? The economies of scale end as soon as whatever the vehicle is that you uh, use to ship the parcels uh, is full. So if you go, let's say, outside of Singapore, if you go to cities like Jakarta, Bangkok, Manila, or the big metropolis, a lot of the delivery done uh, via motorcycles. So, and you can put big boxes on the motorcycles, but there, there's a physical limitation on what you can do there. If you basically have enough parcels uh, for, for a motorcycle to be relatively efficient delivering parcels, having double the amount of parcels just means that you have double the amount of motorcycles, but you don't have many big cost advantages anymore. Because uh, they literally fit in, uh, I don't know, 20, 30 parcels. Then you have to go back to the hub to get uh, the next load. So, so you don't have these uh, efficiency gains anymore. If you go to cities like Singapore, uh, you don't use motorcycles for delivery, you need uh, vans. But uh, with vans, you also have the same logic. There, At some stage, you don't fit any more parcels in that van. Particularly if you start pooling parcels to, to locker boxes or like parcel shops, and you drop off 50 parcels there. So you probably, if you really, really push it, you get maybe 500 kind of parcels in the big van. But uh, then you go to 10 different locker boxes and then you literally then you have to go back and get more passes. The notion that kind of the size of the vehicle uh, kind of limits your uh, efficiency, uh, I think is something that only becomes apparent over the last few years. And uh, that's where I think uh, anyone who's able to fill that van efficiently has, has a good business to, to work with. And uh, the efficiency gains beyond that uh, are, are relatively minor. And I think that's that's the, the kind of element that's fueling this fragmentation where you say, hey, there's, there's a sufficiently large element for this particular service level or kind of for this geographical area that say, hey, uh, it's worth having another carrier, uh, particularly if that carrier operates in a much better cost structure because it's much leaner, has better technologies, uh, etc. That's really interesting because what you're saying is the economies of scale does exist, but it exists at different layers and some layers are more amenable to economies of scale as an advantage and some areas, some geographies that have those layers just don't have that same level. And so actually being thoughtful about what layer it is is interesting. 
I think in that world, when you think about the world, obviously you see so many aggregators, right? So they're trying to say, okay, all these logistics companies, like you said, and you're, you're careful to differentiate yourself on them, they're going to be fragmented because of these differing levels of economies of scale. How do you see that transition for aggregation as well? Because there are so many different aggregator players as well, Shippo, for example, Possible Form, so so forth. So how do you see aggregation? Is that is it also going to be fragmented because there's going to be different layers of point of view or how do you see that playing out? There are two very distinct business models on this aggregation layer. One is what we call resellers. So you basically, you buy a logistic service from like five, ten different carriers, get some rate cards and resell it to other players so they can just buy all of it from you. That's a great business model, particularly for smaller merchants who don't want to have like five different contracts. With the aggregation of volumes, they also get better rates than any particular merchant would get. So I think that's a very valid business model and that's kind of interesting for carriers to work with also because it lowers the cost to serve. Because as a carrier, you don't want to contract with that many small players just for a few, two or three shipments a day. That's simply not worth it. Uh, so they appreciate those resellers uh, to just take over that part of the process and just uh, kind of consolidate volumes. Nevertheless, the carriers understand that this is a bit dangerous because once they give them good rates, they can undermine uh, kind of the rates that the carrier themselves gives to their bigger customers. So that's where I think at the moment the customer gets bigger, they, they will start kind of working with the carriers directly because they get better rates from them. That's when the second category of aggregators, uh, which Possible Form belongs to, comes into play, where we are not kind of putting ourselves in the commercial relationship between the carrier and the merchants. We are, we're an unbiased platform. Towards our customers, we don't care or we don't get involved in which carrier is the one that they, they work with or partner with. What we are doing is we just make that process of partnering uh, a lot easier. So they can integrate through our platform. We, we, we take care of all the technical complexities, data transfer, back and forth with the carrier. That's all handled by our platform. They just kind of tell us who they work with, but they agree on the pricing. This is also a business model which the carriers also appreciate a lot more because they don't lose control over their rate cards, their commercial relationships. We just make, uh, make it easier for the merchant to work with uh, the 10, sometimes 20 carriers that may be relevant for them for their customers and uh, kind of a business model that works particularly in the, with bigger customers in the enterprise uh, segment. And I think that's where it gets also interesting because those merchants are bigger and they probably operate cross-border, they have more complex supply chains, they have to do cross-border returns. Uh, and that's where companies like ours, Parcel Perform, is thriving because that complexity would otherwise be very, very difficult to manage if you just have to build everything in-house. On that note, could you share with us the time that you personally have been brave? Well, I think uh, for me personally, the time I felt very brave or reckless. Uh, at that time, we didn't know yet. When we took the decision to, to start Parcel Perform. For me personally, uh, you work in a big company, obviously you have a decent salary. Kind of, I was married, we had kids, I was 36 years old. So normally that's not kind of a time when you're at ease to take a decision, oh, hey, I let go of all my salary and just start a business without knowing whether it's going to work, when it's going to work. That required quite a lot of conviction. And at that moment, I felt brave to really make uh, take that decision. Uh, of course, uh, we were excited about the space. There was a bit of the push element, wanting to go back to the entrepreneurial journey. But I think if you look at all the opportunity costs, it was a brave decision at that time, because now we 
we know kind of uh, six years into the journey, uh, we have a very sizable business. We have a market. Uh, the business model has been validated. The product has been validated. Now, in hindsight, one can say, hey, this was kind of a no-brainer from, from to begin with. But at that time, it was a very brave decision. Yeah, I'm happy it turned out that way, but uh, it wasn't for sure certain at that time. So that's when I felt very brave. You mentioned something interesting, which was that you didn't really know how brave you were at that point of time. And now you know that it was a very brave moment. So could you share a little bit more about why you feel that way? I'm somebody who's very excitable. Uh, I think that's that's probably important to be a startup founder because uh, if you're not excited about your own product, uh, it's hard to convince any investors, any customers of the same product. You also know kind of a level of excitement or being excitable is a bias that you have, uh, which probably makes you a lot more brave in taking uh, risky decisions, which is important uh, to be a founder. But I think at that time, probably I, it didn't feel as much of a very risky decision because we were had like 100% conviction that this is going to fly. Without that, I probably wouldn't have done it. In hindsight, looking at the market, some companies who tried their luck in the same space, starting earlier or later, kind of failed because it, the timing wasn't right. So if you look at it uh, from the perspective of a high insight, I think it was quite a brave kind of decision because I think there's a lot of like uh, elements that come to it. Obviously, the opportunity needs to be there. The timing needs to be right. Uh, there's an element of luck, uh, meeting the right customers at the right time, meeting the right investors at the right time. So, so very much didn't realize these elements when taking the decision. I probably wouldn't have taken that decision if I would have known the, this is all about timing and luck rather than just hard work. Because hard work, I was sure uh, we will and uh, we can and we will put in, but it's not everything that matters. You realize uh, it in high insight, but uh, yeah, uh, you also look back. Mm, I was a little bit naive at that time <laughs> when taking the decision. Yeah? On that note, I love to kind of wrap things up by kind of synthesizing the three big teams. Uh, the first, of course, is thank you so much for sharing. I think your experience being a McKinsey but also choosing to become an operator at Solora and being a founder eventually. And what were the skills that you know, transported well? And also some of the untraining that you had to do in terms of a bias to action, in terms of data, in terms of what actually goes on in the business of building a technology company. Also, thank you so much for sharing about why you're passionate about e-commerce logistics and also a lot of the misconceptions and myths around it, especially you know, what I interested was to hear was about how Logistics scales faster than e-commerce, you know, because of average order value and how the competitive market is still very fragmented. So these are all great learnings. Lastly, I really enjoyed, I think, uh, some of the hindsight about how brave you were in retrospect versus not feeling like you were brave and feeling like it was no-brainer when you first found it and how some of that naivete insulate you and help expedite you in terms of making a decision whilst you were a 36-year-old dad and husband and uh, choosing to build something. And it's awesome that things have worked out over the past six years in terms of luck, circumstance, timing, and as well as your own hard work and expertise. Thank you so much for coming on the show. No, thanks for having me. I very much enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, Please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyow.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave. <laughs>